Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. everyone, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host Sherry coming to you from way over here on the very dark side. I need to let you guys know I will not be publishing anything next week. I'll be away on vacation and I won't have access to record and edit and so on. So I'm sorry to have to miss a week, but I need a vacation from my regular full-time corporate job. I'll be back the following week though. Today's case is about a young woman named Samantha Koenig. She works at a coffee stand in Anchorage, Alaska. She's taken one night by a masked man, leaving her family and friends shocked and reeling with pain, wondering where she could be. Her abduction was captured on surveillance. Her abductor reached out to her family and requested ransom money, and they complied, but he did not. This is episode 83, The Murder of Samantha Koenig. This story takes us back to 2012. Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney and is re-elected President of the United States. The world lost Whitney Houston, Neil Armstrong, and Trayvon Martin. A gunman opened fire during a midnight screening of the Batman movie The Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Colorado. There was also the Sandy Hook Elementary School Massacre. 2012 was a rough year. I tried to find some good news, and I found that professional acrobat Nick Wallenda successfully walked across Niagara Falls on a wire. His grandfather had attempted something similar back in 1978, and he fell to his death, so everyone was holding their breath the whole time until Nick reached the end. In 2012, Felix Baumgartner, who is an Austrian adrenaline junkie and former F1 driver for Red Bull, Well, he skydived. No big deal, except he skydived from outer space, 128,000 feet in the air. Red Bull sponsored the whole thing. I remember watching it live, and it was terrifying. He broke 846 miles per hour and managed to not pass out. And lastly, in 2012, the world did not end, even though many believe the Mayans predicted 2012 was the end of times. Samantha Koenig was born in Anchorage, Alaska on August 30, 1993. So at the time of this story in 2012, Samantha is 18. She is a senior in high school. 
Samantha works at a coffee shop. Have you ever seen those tiny coffee shops that are basically just a drive-through? There's no tables and customers aren't allowed inside. You basically just pull up to the window and order your coffee and they hand it to you through the window. There's enough room for one or two employees inside and that's it. That's where she worked. Samantha has a boyfriend named Dwayne. She loves fishing, animals, friends, music, photography, writing music, and playing Call of Duty. She is the light of her dad's life. She was his entire world, and when she was a baby, he was known to never leave her side. Her dad always said, I love you, honey bunny. That was their thing, which is just adorable. So her and her dad were very close. She lives with her dad and her boyfriend, Dwayne. Samantha has a bright future ahead of her at just 18 years old. She has plans to someday join the Navy, but she also wants to work with animals. This area that Samantha lives and works in is Anchorage, Alaska. It is the largest city in Alaska. Anchorage averages 75 inches of annual snowfall. The highest temperature ever recorded was in the summer of 2019 when it reached 90 degrees, which is crazy because it's usually 55 to 78 degrees in the summer. The night of February 1st, 2012, it is 32 degrees outside. There's snow everywhere, just like any other day in Anchorage. You just get used to seeing white snow all day, every day. Samantha is working alone at the Common Grounds drive through coffee stand. She hasn't been employed very long. She worked for Subway, but really wanted this job at the coffee stand, and she worked hard, and she did her job well. A 34-year-old man in his white pickup truck pulls into the nearby Home Depot parking lot. It's a little after 7 p.m. He sees this little coffee stand is somewhat hidden from the road. It's got these huge snowdrifts that obscure it well. He decides he's going to rob it, something he had been planning for a while. He knows it's mainly teenagers who work alone there and thinks this should be easy. But he also had more sinister things in mind. He didn't just want to rob the stand. He sat and watched it for a bit. He sees 18-year-old Samantha through the window. She's cleaning up and wiping down coffee and bottles of syrup. He doesn't see any cars outside the stand, so he assumes she doesn't have a car. She must have gotten a ride to work or she walked. He waits until it's just about closing time when no other customers would be coming to the window. He chose this night because there was this big festival going on across town, and he knew police would be focused on that area tonight. At 7.55 p.m., he puts a police scanner piece into his ear. He grabs zip ties, his gun, and his coffee mug. He approaches the window. This is an open window with no screen. He hands Samantha his thermos and asks for a fill-up of coffee. She takes his thermos and fills it up with coffee, and while she's doing this, the man notices a car idling nearby before it drove off. When Samantha returned to the window, expecting to just hand him back his thermos, she sees this man is pointing a gun at her. He told her this was a robbery. He tells her to empty the register. She is scared to death and stiffly moves through the small area inside to the register. She hands him the money. We know exactly what happened because all of this was on surveillance. The coffee stand had really good cameras inside. 
we can see video of Samantha during this time. And I feel awful for her because she appears really frightened. I also feel awful knowing that she isn't going to be alive much longer and these were her final hours. I remember my son being a senior in high school and thinking, what if this was my child being scared like this? He instructs her to turn off all the lights and get down on the floor. He tells her to sit on her knees and put her hands behind her back. He leans in the window and zip ties her wrists together. He asks her if, if she hit a silent alarm button and she says no. He says, I swear to God, if you hit it, I'll know because I have a police scanner in my ear and I'll kill you. At this point, the surveillance video is so dark because she had to turn the lights off, so we can't see the man or who he is. He jumps over the counter and into the store. He asks her where her car is. She says she doesn't have one. Her dad will be here to pick her up in 30 minutes, though. Then she changed her story really fast and said, actually, my dad's going to be here any minute. He takes some napkins and shoves them in her mouth and marches her outside to his truck and shuts the coffee stand up. As they're walking towards his truck at the Home Depot parking lot, he spots a new camera on the ground, like someone left a really expensive camera just laying there. He stops to pick it up, and Samantha attempted to flee, but she didn't make it far with her hands zip-tied behind her back. Whoever this person is is good. He's a professional for sure, and he knows what he's doing. He's likely done this before. So they're in this Home Depot parking lot. You guys know 8 p.m. on a Wednesday at Home Depot, there's usually people in the parking lot. He tells her his gun is small and very quiet. If you scream, I'll shoot you and no one will hear it. He tells her to just pretend like she's his girlfriend and she's had too much to drink and he's helping her walk to their vehicle. He keeps the gun pressed against her ribs and opens the passenger door to his truck for her. They take off in the truck. Samantha has no idea what's going on or where he's taking her to or what he's going to do with her. According to the New York Post, they are at a red light. Samantha looks out her passenger window and right next to them is a police car with two officers inside. She can hear their scanner in the car next to her, but nothing being said about a teenage girl being kidnapped. Besides, this man had the same scanner in his ear, so he could hear everything as well. Samantha weighs her options. Should I start banging my head on the window? Remember, she's got a mouthful of napkins and her hands are zip tied behind her. The light eventually turns green and the police car takes off ahead of them. Samantha watches their taillights get smaller and smaller as it drove away. Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, shows up around 8.30 p.m. to pick her up and sees all the lights are off. He feels something is wrong. Why isn't she here? But the place is locked up so he can't go inside. Samantha and the kidnapper drove for a long time, like a few hours, because he's taking her back to his house and he knows his 10-year-old daughter is sound asleep by now, but his girlfriend, who works as a nurse practitioner, is a night owl who likes to stay awake until 11 p.m. or so, so he's trying to buy some time. He realizes that Samantha doesn't have her phone with her, and he's going to need that phone. So he drives back to the coffee stand and gets it. He shoots off a few text messages to her boyfriend. He pretends like he's Samantha and just says, hey, I'm going to stay with friends tonight. I'm fine. Quit bugging me. He also sends one to her boss that says she's done for the night and closing down. He then takes the battery out of her phone. So he has this shed right next to his house, and he puts her in it and tells her to stay calm. 
He says he has plans to let her go, and this is strictly for ransom money, and that's it. He asks for her debit card, and she tells him that it's in her boyfriend's truck. Her and Dwayne share the same debit card. So he says he needs her debit card, and he needs her address where this truck is. She complied and gives him her address. He tells her he'll be back in a bit. Do not scream. I have this police scanner in my ear. I'll know if they get any calls of a woman screaming, and I'll make it back here before the police do. Plus, he put on heavy metal music and turned it up loud in the shed. The man gets back in his truck and drives to Samantha's house that she shares with her boyfriend and her dad. He gets out and walks over to Dwayne's truck and finds her debit card. Well, Dwayne is outside and yells for the man to get the fuck away from his truck. He runs inside to get James, who was Samantha's father, and when they come back outside, the man was gone. If things would have just aligned slightly better, they could have had him. Meanwhile, James and Dwayne have no idea that this man has Samantha captured. Remember, the man posed as her and texted them and said that she was staying with friends tonight. He arrives back to the shed, and she says her family doesn't have much money, so they won't be able to provide ransom money. He says in situations like this, the community comes together and contributes. He ties her up in the shed by placing a rope around her neck with each side anchored to the wall. He goes inside to check on his girlfriend and daughter, who are both sound asleep. He downs a glass of wine, and then he goes back out to the shed. He tells Samantha he has plans to rape her and then strangle her, and that's exactly what he does. Samantha is raped repeatedly and then strangled to death. He wraps her in a plastic tarp and shoved her body inside one of the cabinets in the shed. He turns off the space heater in the shed because it's so cold in Alaska, the temps are below freezing. He knows this will preserve her body for a while. By now, it's really early morning, around 3 a.m. At 5 a.m., he has plans with his 10-year-old daughter to take a cruise vacation. So they're in Alaska, and they have to catch an airplane to New Orleans first. This had been planned out for a while. He wakes his daughter up, and they are off on vacation. His daughter was from a previous relationship, and he had partial custody. She spent half the time with her mom and the other half the time with her dad. I can find very little about this man's girlfriend, like not even a photo. It doesn't appear she went along on the cruise. Maybe she couldn't get the time off of work, but it appears in most sources that it was just him and his daughter going on vacation. Samantha is reported missing the next morning. Things like this usually don't happen in this upscale area of Anchorage, Alaska, so police have their work cut out for them. Samantha's boss arrives at the coffee stand in the morning and goes inside. It appears she just kind of walked out of her shift, except all the money is missing from the register. There are also napkins all over the floor. It looks like a struggle ensued involving napkins, She pulls up the surveillance footage and sees what happened. She sees Samantha being robbed and then taken out. The surveillance video outside shows a masked man walking her out to the Home Depot parking lot next door. They don't get an image of the vehicle they got in, though. The owner of the shop contacts police and turns the video over to them. 
Over the next couple weeks, the community comes together and there's candlelight vigils being held. Hundreds of people are searching for her. They're raising money. They're bringing the family food and meals. Samantha's dad, James, is incredibly strong during this time. Even though it was his daughter who was missing, he was the strong one for her friends. He gave them hugs and talked with them and wanted to make sure that they were okay. When the man and his daughter returned two weeks later, He unrolls Samantha's body from the tarp. Her body is pretty well preserved because it had been so cold in the shed. He now needs to request ransom money from her family. He powers up her cell phone. He then spent the next couple hours getting her ready for a proof of life photo. Her family will want some kind of proof of life before they will send any kind of money. He takes makeup and covers any kind of discoloration on her face. He braids her hair. He also places duct tape over her mouth. He then takes fishing line and sews her eyes open. He places a newspaper from a day or two prior next to her. So they can see she's alive two weeks later. Really, she's been dead this whole time. Just to jump in real fast about this proof of life photo, There is a widely circulated photo on the internet of this. However, it is not the actual photo. It was a recreation for a documentary of some kind. In the real photo, which has never been released publicly, her hair is braided by her killer. She also had duct tape over her mouth. The girl in the photo that has been circulated everywhere online was just an actress, but he did indeed sew Samantha's eyes open and apply makeup or paint to hide the decomposition. I watched an interview with one of the detectives who viewed the actual real photo. He said that even though her eyes are open, you could tell she is either unconscious or deceased. Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, well, his phone dings with a new text message, and it's from Samantha's phone. This is huge because she's been missing for two weeks. The text message reads, quote, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Investigators hurry to Connor Lake Park. When they get there, they're walking around and they see a missing dog poster for a dog named Albert. Tacked onto Albert's picture is a baggie. Inside the baggie is a typed letter demanding $30,000, as well as a photo of Samantha where she appeared to be alive but was really dead. The only amount of money her dad was able to deposit into Samantha's account was $5,000. First, $1,500 was withdrawn at various ATMs, but the person always had their face covered. So the police have the bank alert them each time her card was used. The issue is that there is a 10-minute delay each time. So he would use the card to withdraw cash at an ATM. 10 minutes later, police would get an alert that a transaction was made at such and such address. One week goes by and there's no hits on the debit card. There's no more text messages either. The police and Samantha's family is counting on her being alive. They are holding up their end by depositing money into her account, but he's not telling them where she can be found alive and well. Finally, they get an alert that the ATM card was used 10 minutes ago, except this time it was 2,700 miles from Alaska. It's in Arizona. The next day, there was another withdrawal in New Mexico. Police can see this person is traveling the I-10. There are two more withdrawals in eastern Texas, 
But the last one captured something none of the others had. It captured a fuzzy picture of the car the man was driving. It was a rental car, and it was a white Ford Focus. The police in Texas put out a bolo or a be on the lookout for this white Ford Focus. One officer happened to see a white Ford Focus at a hotel room, so he kind of stalked it out for a bit in the parking lot. It's broad daylight, and he eventually sees a man in his mid-30s come out of one of the hotel rooms. He talks to some of the other folks there for a couple minutes. He appeared jovial and completely normal. He looked like any other person. Nothing stood out. He gets in the white Ford Focus and leaves the hotel. The officer follows behind him for a ways. He doesn't have a reason to pull him over, so he's just going to trail behind him. Finally, he was able to clock the white Ford Focus going three miles per hour over the speed limit, so he flips his lights on and calls for backup. He asks him to step out of the vehicle. I watched this entire traffic stop on camera, and it was pretty intense. He steps out, and he's wearing sunglasses. He says, good day, officer. Can you tell me why I'm being pulled over? They tell him he was going three miles per hour over the speed limit but they're really investigating a kidnapping that happened back in Alaska. They ask him where he's from, and he says Alaska, and he's just here visiting family. He produces his driver's license to show them who he was. His name is Israel Keys. They hold him there while the other officers arrive. Finally, they put him in the police car because they search his car and find wads of money that was recently from a bank robbery in the area. It has the dye packs attached. Then they find the debit card of Samantha Koenig. They also found all kinds of other suspicious items in the car, such as zip ties, face masks from a cut-up t-shirt, just like the one in the ATM surveillance footage videos. They also found Samantha's ID card and her cell phone. The police in Texas notify the police in Alaska, and they have him extradited back to Anchorage. At first, he says, I don't know anything about this girl and makes up some bullshit about how he found her debit card or whatever, but they know he's lying. Finally, he says, look, I'll tell you guys everything. There's a lot I will come clean about, but he has certain conditions. First, he doesn't want his name getting out to the public because he wants to protect his daughter and also his girlfriend as they are innocent in all of this, but especially his 10-year-old daughter. He says he wants the death penalty as quickly as possible. The detectives tell him, we're not the judge or the jury, but depending on what you've done, you likely will get the death penalty. Third, he wants a coffee, a candy bar, and a cigar. These detectives comply with everything he asked for. They need to get him talking, so they're going to do whatever he asks them to do. He could ask for a lobster and steak dinner, and they'll provide it as long as they get him talking. They need to know where Samantha is and if she's alive and how they can get to her. They learn that Samantha is not his only victim. In fact, Israel Keys is a serial killer, a very smart, meticulous, detailed serial killer. He has lots of victims, and they want him to tell them about his crimes, and at this point, he's willing to do that, as long as they comply with his requests. I watched a ton of this footage over the years, and you can find all of his interrogation videos online. He appears very calm, and it doesn't bother him to talk about dismembering people or anything extreme like that, except he was uncomfortable talking about sexual assaults. So they start from the beginning. 
Israel is 34 years old. He is a self-employed carpenter and a really good one. He was born in Utah in 1978. He was the second of 10 children. His parents were extremely religious to the point where he was homeschooled. He wasn't given medication for illness when he was a kid because his parents shunned modern medicine. They aren't your average Christians. They are part of a church called Christian Identity Church, which is now a designated hate group due to their white supremacist views. Israel did not share the same views as his parents, though. They didn't have electricity or water or birth certificates or social security cards. His parents named him Israel, if that doesn't tell you how religious they were. But despite all these issues, Israel says he was never abused by his parents. As Israel got older, he began breaking into people's houses. He also began torturing animals. Torturing animals is a clear sign of someone who is likely going to grow up and become a serial killer. As a teenager, he told his parents that he was an atheist and he rejected their God, and for this they kicked him out of the house. He went and joined the army and was honorably discharged in 2001. He met a woman on the internet and they had a daughter together. The woman was an alcoholic and he eventually broke up with her and they still shared custody of their daughter. Israel moved to Alaska and moved in with his girlfriend, who he says is unaware of his crimes. Israel Keyes begins to discuss Samantha. He says he did not target her specifically. It could have been anyone in there that night. He says he ordered a coffee, and when she went to hand it to him, he pulled a gun on her. He explains about how she tried to run when he was walking her to his truck. He says he placed her in the shed while his family slept inside the house. He says he raped her repeatedly. He went and got her debit card, and when he got back, he strangled her to death. He says when they return from their Caribbean vacation, he goes into the shed and needs to take a proof of life photo of Samantha, but her body was frozen solid, so he had to use a space heater to defrost her and apply makeup and sew her eyes open with fishing line before posing her for a photo. At this point, they know Samantha is no longer alive and must deliver this news to her father. Israel says once he dropped off the ransom note and photograph, he returned to the shed where he dismembered Samantha and dropped her remains into the Matanuska Lake. Now, this wasn't a big open body of water. You can walk on it because it's a sheet of ice. He didn't need a boat or anything like that. He literally just walked out into the middle of the lake, cut a hole in the ice, and dropped her remains in it. He asked for a laptop, and they pull up a map of the area he points to the exact location where he disposed of her in the lake. Behind the scenes, a dive team goes out and first they use sonar equipment and eventually have to send two divers into the icy waters. 10 hours from start to finish was how long it took to get Samantha's remains out. It was a very sad day for her family, her boyfriend, her friends, and her classmates and teachers. Samantha was then cremated. The detectives in the room tell Israel they know this wasn't his only killing. Tell us about the others. If you want the death penalty so bad, you're going to have to tell us about more victims. Israel says he drives around the country killing people, and he used to kill these kill kits that he would bury in various states. For example, he would get a five-gallon bucket. And he would place zip ties, rope, a gun, rubber gloves in it, and then he would bury it and write down the coordinates so he could come back to it and do a killing in the area. According to the New York Post, 
Israel tells the detectives that he killed Bill and Lorraine Courier in Vermont. Bill and Lorraine Courier went missing in June of 2011. Both of them worked for the University of Vermont. Bill was 50 and Lorraine was 55. Israel was just in the area and scoping out houses to break into. He made sure not to pick one with a dog. He also wanted one that didn't have any children. He went in through their attached garage after cutting their phone lines outside and began shining a light in their faces while they slept. They awoke startled with a masked intruder pointing his gun at them. He ties them up and drove them to an abandoned farmhouse after stealing their debit cards. He put Bill downstairs in the basement and Lorraine upstairs. He said Bill pissed him off because he was trying to fight back. He had to get out his gun, which he didn't really want to do. That wasn't his style. He had this whole thing meticulously planned out, and because Bill was thrashing around and fighting back, he has to do things a different way. He hit Bill twice with a shovel, and each time he got up yelling, where is my wife? He finally had to shoot Bill, and this was different than his usual strangling, so he's upset about that, and he takes it out on Lorraine. He ties her to the bed face down and raped her twice. Then he takes her downstairs and shows her Bill laying in a pool of his own blood. Israel said there was so much blood from Bill and this wasn't something he was used to. He put a rope around Lorraine's neck and strangled her, then laid her and Bill's bodies together wrapped in large trash bags. He put them under some wood and trash in the basement of this abandoned house. After Israel tells them the story of Bill and Lorraine, their families are informed the police rush to this house and find it had been demolished. Bill and Lorraine are still considered missing persons. Even though we have a confession from a serial killer, their bodies have still never been located. They were destroyed when the house was demolished. Unfortunately, word gets out to the media that Israel Keyes was responsible for a string of murders, including Bill and Lorraine Courier. One news station ran a story on him, and Israel finds out and says, that's it, I'm done talking. He says he won't tell them about any of his other victims, and he's done. No more cooperating. He says he warned them all that he didn't want his name getting out there yet because of his daughter, and this news station aired a story about him. So Israel isn't going to talk any more about the killings or who his victims are. There are a few missing people that many believe were killed by Israel, but he won't say who they are. He was going to until the news ran a story about him. In May of 2012, Israel is in court when he was able to come out of his leg restraints. He hopped over seats and tried to run out. A bunch of people in the courtroom screamed. One woman even shouted, kill him. He was quickly taken down with a taser from a U.S. Marshal. He didn't even make it out of the courtroom. This is something that Ted Bundy had attempted as well, and Israel was known to be obsessed with Ted Bundy and felt that they shared a lot of the same thoughts. Israel was obsessed with other serial killers, and when speaking of the BTK killer, he called him a wimp for apologizing in court and showing remorse for the killings. On the morning of December 2nd, 2012, Israel Keyes was the highest profile inmate in the Department of Corrections in Alaska, but for some reason, a guard was distracted by something else. 
According to Anchorage Daily News, the guard was the lone guard for 15 prisoners. He was supposed to do a visual inspection of each cell every half hour, as well as a formal count every four hours. He read a novel that night and talked to other correctional officers. The next morning, around 6 a.m., Israel Keyes was found dead in his cell. He had slashed his wrist with a razor that he had kept that he was supposed to give back, and then he hung himself. It reads attempted strangulation, so I'm unsure if the cause of death was from the hanging or his wrist being slashed. He took his blood, and on a piece of paper, he drew 11 skulls, which are thought to represent 11 victims. FBI Special Agent Jolene Godin says of Israel, Although he chose many of his victims randomly, A tremendous amount of planning went into these crimes. He enjoyed what he did, and he had no remorse at all. He told us if he hadn't been caught, he would have continued kidnapping and murdering people. She also said they have his DNA. It's hard to link him to other killings, though, because he was so meticulous about covering his tracks. Samantha's family and Bill and Lorraine's families will never get to see justice for their loved ones. Israel took the easy way out. He isn't paying for his crimes today like he should be. It's scary knowing just how normal he appeared. He seemed like just an ordinary guy. No one knew he had this double life. Men he worked with say he was pleasant. He always talked about his daughter and would say each time she had a milestone, whether it was learning to walk or her first day of school. By all accounts, he seemed to blend into society well. Rest in peace to every victim of this horrible monster and also to his possible victims. I hope their cases give closure very soon. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again in two weeks. Take care, and much love to you all.